0: lovely to be back with you this afternoon. My wife's with me and uh, it was a joy to be with you all this morning. Uh, turn in your Bibles now to the passage of Scripture that we've just sung and that was read just a few moments earlier in the service, the 130th Psalm. And uh, before we start to study this passage, let us pray. Our God and Father, your word is like food to the hungry. It's like water and milk to the thirsty, and Lord, for those who are needing nourishment. And we pray that your word would be to us a feeding for our souls, for our minds and our hearts, that it would direct our paths, that it would rebuke us in our sins. And most of all, it would point us clearly to the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who is the Savior for all who call upon him. We ask this in his name, amen. When I was a a boy in primary school, Eastern Primary School in Brody Ferry in the the, uh, 1950s, uh, I hated serious poetry. Uh, nonsense rhyme uh, was different. I loved that. The the dafter, the better. The more stupid, the more enjoyable. You know, it was in the month of Liverpool, in the city of July. The rain was snowing heavily, and the streets were very dry. That still has an appeal to me, and I pride myself in the fact that that's the only poem that I learned or tried to learn from my primary school days. That I can actually remember. Uh, it appealed and still appeals to my quirky sense of humour. But if the primary teacher had told me that in adult life I would not only read and study serious poetry, but uh, would enjoy doing so, and even further I would enjoy teaching and explaining to people, even more so if the teacher had said that uh, this particular poetry would not be, uh, not be studying it in its original native language, but would do so in an English translation of an ancient Middle Eastern language called Hebrew. Uh, quite frankly, at that stage, I would have thought that the teacher had taken leave of her senses. Well, whenever God's word is preached, when the Psalms are preached, uh, we're preaching from that kind of poetry. The Psalms, as originally were given, were Hebrew poems. There were songs to be sung in the temple and synagogue. There were also poetic prayers. And indeed, Martin Luther, the great reformer, called the Book of Psalms the only true prayer book. That is, they are the only prayer book that has God as the ultimate author. They are his inspired words of prayer and praise given to his people to be prayed and to be sung for all ages. Now, when studying passages of the Old Testament, and especially the Psalms, it's important that we have a helpful rule and guide of interpretation. Each Psalm, I believe, has three phases or dimensions that we should grasp in order to make sense of them for our day and generation. Uh, Here's my rule of thumb. You may have a better one, but here's my rule of thumb. First of all, the psalm contains history. What the psalmist was writing about in his immediate circumstances, what he saw in front of him, what he saw in himself, how he had behaved, how other people were behaving, and so on. But also the psalms, as with the, all the Old Testament, ultimately points to an event, or more particularly a person in the future, uh, these are the words of prophecy as well as the words of history. And the third phase or our dimension to the psalm is application. Now, no matter what age we belong to, whether we're ancient or modern, and I can appreciate some of us with an abundance of white hair look perhaps more ancient than we are in reality, there is, no matter what age we're from, there is teaching and instruction and encouragement and challenge for all of us in these God-inspired writings. So very quickly, let's look through these three phases and then seek to apply history. We're not sure, actually, who wrote this psalm. It's not down as a psalm of David. Um, some scholars uh, reckon it could have been King Hezekiah, alluding to Solomon's prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, lying at the gates of death as he prays, his prayer is heard, and he's answered, he's raised up to health and strength. These scholars may or may not be right. Uh, similarly, judging the whole tenor of the opening verses, we could read some of Jonah's experiences into it. Lord from the depths, to thee I cry. Perhaps best if we say that uh, we just leave this matter as to the human writer, we leave that to God. Or the jury's still out on it as far as we're concerned. The human agent whom God moved to use the write this portion of his word in one sense is of little consequence to us. It is in the Psalter the sixth of the, what the early church called the seven great penitential psalms. Psalms that emphasize true and deep repentance for sin by someone who has been awakened to how serious his rebellion against God truly is. How about the prophecy? Well, it points ultimately to the fulfillment of the Old Testament Day of Atonement Yom Kippur the most holy day in the whole of the Jewish calendar, its fulfillment through the sacrifice, not of an animal, but through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself on the cross of Calvary as the only sacrifice that can actually take away his people's sins. But how about the application? Well, let's look at uh, some of the verbs here. Watching and waiting, the emphasis... The experiences of God's people under conviction of how sinful they are in God's sight. This is articulated for us in the psalm. Their experience rise from the depths of sinfulness in verse 1 to the heights of salvation in verse 8 by four steps. I cry, I fear, I wait, I hope. Why? Because he realizes in this psalm he is guilty... Before the God God, in his holy justice, real, the realization of personal sin, we are to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God alone. The forgiveness that 's mentioned in verse four is essentially pardoning, a significance of which is worth our pondering, and fourthly, the psalmist has confidence in the lord 's willingness and ability to fully accomplish our salvation. So let's now look at the text of this psalm and see what God is saying to us through the mouth of his chosen psalmist. Part one is an expression of repentance. Now, the word repent, certainly as it's translated in the New Testament, comes from two Greek words put together, metanoia, which means change the mind. Now, there's a lot in that, but literally it means change the mind, change the attitude, change how you think. And we find in verses one and two, there's a woeful request. The psalmist we could say is at what we would call wit's end corner. His life, whatever the circumstances, has reached a crisis point. He realizes that there is now nothing he can do or plead that will in any way enable him to escape from his precarious position. He is in peril. Death, with all its horrors, appears to stare him in the face. Who then can he turn to for help? Not himself, not his family or his neighbors, not his subjects if he was the king, nor the institutional religious rituals and liturgies. Humanly speaking, he's doomed. If he is to be saved at all, then his salvation must come from a greater power, must come indeed from his maker. And it is in these extreme circumstances that he turns to the Lord his God himself. The true and living God is the only one to whom he can turn and wisely so, for only the Lord God can provide what this poor soul needs. Only the true and living God, the God who can hear the cry of the desperate sinner, is the one who is uniquely able and qualified to come to his rescue. Now, I've lived all my life, apart from holidays, a uh, within 200 yards of the Bronte Ferry liveboat station. My late father, uncles, grandfather, and more recently one of my sons uh, were all members of the Bronte Ferry liveboat crew. Not at the same time, of course. Now, it's a known fact that Bronte Ferry's liveboat is one of the busiest stations in the United Kingdom. And sadly, many of the shouts or call-outs that it gets are not for shipwrecks these days, but are because of people in a desperate state who have determined to end their own lives by jumping into the River Tay. Now occasionally the live boat crew arrive on the scene just in time to see someone in a desperate situation in the water and close to perishing. And sometimes the sudden shock of the cold water on their bodies brings them to their senses, and in such cases, they cry out for help. Even when they see the lifeboat approaching, the intensity of their cry grows as they see the crew getting nearer and nearer. Try to picture the scene only moments from eternity, only minutes away. From meeting their maker These folk cry out Help! Save me! In the hope That the crew Can come to their aid And just occasionally Our local lifeboat crew Have been able to pluck such people From a watery grave And pull them alive aboard the boat Now the man who wrote this psalm One thing we do know about him He's not in the River Tay But he does realize his perilous position and he cries for help to the Lord God, the true and living God. And we've got to ask ourselves here, why is it so awful and so awesome a prospect to enter death? Well, he tells us in verse 3, if you, O Lord, kept a record of our sins who could stand? Lord, if you were keeping a record of every time we sinned, who could stand? And this is a wise remark. If God was keeping a record of the sins and offenses we've ever committed against him, who could stand? And this is the perilous plight of all who die unforgiven and unreconciled to God. This is indeed to fall into the hands of an angry God. And it's extremely serious to come face to face with the great and all-holy judge of heaven and earth. And the psalmist realized this, and that's why death was so frightening for him. Let's look at it this way. If death was only the end of existence, if death was simply the cessation of our beings, if death was merely annihilation, then what would be so scary about it? might not like it, but what's scary about it? No, the psalmist knew better than that. He knew that death meant being brought before God for justice to be meted out to him. And this is indeed a terrifying prospect. Verse 3 is followed by verse 4. A weighty reason. But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. Notice the word but, some of the other translations of the word and, it doesn't make an awful lot of difference. The word but changes everything because this word tells us that there is more to be considered. There is more to God than simply his justice. The God who is the God of justice is also the God of grace. The God who is the God of punishment is also the God of pardon. The God who is to be feared because of his holiness is also the God who is to be revered because of his forgiveness. But there is forgiveness with you. And this is truly a wonderful statement. It reminds us of what we read in Hebrews chapter 8. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Uh, Joe Beeky, whom I quoted this morning, he, he has a turn of phrase, I've heard him pray more than once, about our sins being cast by God into the depths of the ocean of his eternal forgetfulness. Their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Isaiah forty three: I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for My own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And Isaiah forty four verse twenty two: I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like mist. Return to Me, for I have redeemed you. This God is a sin-pardoning God. You may be uh, familiar with the, the hymn Great God of Wonders. And the chorus at the end of each verse is this. Who is a pardoning God like thee? And who has grace so rich and free? And of course the answer to both questions is no one. Only the true God is the pardoning God. Only the true God has grace so rich and free. Only the true God can give pardon for sin and full forgiveness available only from his hand. If you want, for instance, to buy a new pair of shoes, uh, you have to be careful where you go for it. You wouldn't go to buy a pair of shoes in the butcher's shop. Now, the the steaks he sells may be as tough as leather, but they're no use for wearing on your feet. Similarly, if you want your sins forgiven, you go to no one else but God, for God alone is the only one who can forgive us our sins. And it's here, friends, that the whole tone of the psalm changes as we come to its second part, verses 5 to 8. An expectation of redemption. In verses 5 and 6, we have an emphasis on patience, and perseverance. Having descended to the depths of despair and depression, he now rises to new life all through the work of the Lord. Having reasoned through the situation he was in, from despair near death on the one hand, to pardon and peace with God on the other, he now puts this into practice. Having cried to the Lord for salvation in verse 1, he now waits while God brings that salvation about in his life and restores him from a deathbed experience to health and healing. Uh, My late father uh, was a trawl fisherman for most of his uh, working life, and I remember him sharing with me on many occasions some of the experiences he had on his trawler in the North Sea. And this is one I remember. Out on the North Sea, it was his turn on watch. A dark, overcast, stormy, wet, wintry night. What was it that he most eagerly looked for? And the answer is, it was the first glimmer of sunlight the dawn appearing on the eastern horizon that gave him hope encouragement and cheer for the dark night was almost over and the daybreak near at hand and in verse 6 the psalmist tells us that his soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning and he does so with all the assurance that comes through trusting in God's word even more sure than morning follows night having descended to the depths of despair and depression the psalmist now rises to new life all through the work of the Lord for him and there's more verses seven and eight he has a testimony to bear And here the word that we would consider uh, encapsulating this is the word persuasion. Not only has he experienced this salvation himself, he wishes others to experience the same. That's why he addresses his fellow Israelites in verses 7 and 8. He seeks to persuade them to cast themselves upon the Lord to experience the same love, the same pardon, the same mercy, the same grace, the same redemption, the same salvation of all their sins that he had for his own. Up here, a pardoned sinner can be a persuasive preacher. A redeemed sinner is now a missionary psalmist. He's got a story to tell to the nation. He has a testimony to bear to the people. He has a message to announce to the population. And he is no selfish psalmist. He has neither intention nor desire to keep this good news to himself. Bubbling over in his heart is the compassionate compulsion to share the good news with those whose need is as deep as his. And that's what makes a faithful and fervent evangelist. This is a man who, in the words of Richard Baxter, one of the great preachers of an earlier age, who prayed that he would preach as though he'd never preach again, a dying man to dying men. And here the psalmist has full confidence in the Lord's ability and in the Lord's willingness to save sinners, even the worst of them. And it's here that we see the great reality of all this, even more clearly than the psalmist did when he first wrote these words. In his prophecy, he pointed to the Messiah, the sin-atoning Messiah, who was yet to come. But we see this is completed and accomplished in the fullness of God's revelation, in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his coming to this world as our Savior. We majored on that this morning. Think of the psalmist's experiences and indeed our experiences as they relate to Christ the Redeemer. The psalmist descended to the depths of despair and on realizing the enormity of his sins as offending Against God's holy justice or the God of all holy, uh, the all holy God of justice. Christ descended from heaven to this world in order to save us from our sins and their consequences. Christ, in his suffering on the cross of Calvary, descended in the very depths of hell itself when he bore the full weight of God's anger in the punishment of our sins. He was literally cut off from fellowship with the Father as he died on the cross and this is expressed in Christ's great cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Christ arose from the grave, so shall we arise to newness of life as part and parcel of our salvation. Not just at the last day, But now, through the new life our Redeemer gives us, through his resurrection, enabling us to trust him as our Redeemer. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Not thinking ahead to the great general resurrection, but now the new life that (coughs) comes to us through the power of Christ's resurrection. Notice the way the psalmist expresses this confidence in God's overflowing willingness to redeem sinners. Depending on the translation uh, you're using, it's either full redemption, plentiful redemption, one of the older ones, and I particularly just like the sound of the word, plenteous redemption, such generosity. When I was a little boy growing up in Fisher Street and Brody Ferry, there used to be a lot of weddings in the church nearby on Saturdays. And of course, young children, especially boys, gathered around there. We weren't too interested in the couple, or the dress she was wearing, or her hairstyle, or whatever. There was a practice then, it's gone now, that as the motor cars were leaving the church for wherever the reception was, somebody in each car would have a handful of small change the window down and would throw it and it was a scrammy we used to scrammy for see how much money we could get occasionally there would be a wedding party would leave and there was no money thrown out so we were not beaten by that we just shouted misers after them now the point I'm making here is God is no miser such generosity he doesn't give us a handful of small change he's given us Jesus his greatest, most treasured, precious possession of heaven, and with him freely and gladly and willingly gives us all things. Who is a pardoning God like thee, or who has grace so rich and free? Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels took their own lives rather than face human justice in punishing them for their sins. In doing so, they only plunged themselves unpardoned and unforgiven into the presence of an angry God. They were real nasties, and I'm not meaning a pun here, they were both Nazis and nasties, mass murderers. But no less nasty were some other Nazis for whom things turned out quite differently. Let me draw to the end now by quoting from the lives of two people who in the depths of despair cast themselves on the amazing pardoning grace of God in Christ. In his book, War and Grace, it's published by Evangelical Press, Don Stevens tells us what happened to Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, top soldier in Hitler's army, the Wehrmacht, and then Joachim von Ribbentrop, who was Hitler's foreign minister. Now, let it be said, both men were as evil and as guilty as Hitler in pursuing the Nazi policy of exterminating the Jews, as well as being responsible through their war for the de- deaths of thousands of millions, countless millions. When in prison, awaiting trial at Nuremberg, they, along with 13 other top Nazis, attended chapel services conducted by the Reverend Henry Gerracher, a German-speaking United States Army Lutheran chaplain. Pastorly, he pointed them to Christ. Seriously, he confronted them on the enormity of their sins, and compassionately, he urged them to cast themselves on Jesus the Jew, the only Saviour of sinners. And in addition, he met with each of them individually in their prison cells. He taught them the ABC of the gospel, instructed them in the evangelical teachings of Luther's larger catechism. Now, at first, he met with great resistance. But gradually, these two men and one or two others began to change as the Holy Spirit worked on them as they were hearing the gospel. And Gerrachah records that he had the privilege of leading them to faith in Christ, And he accompanied these condemned Nazi prisoners from their cells to the gallows on the 16th of October, 1946, almost 75 years ago. Listen to this. Among Keitel's last words on his short walk to the hangman's noose were, may Christ, my Saviour, stand by me all the way. I shall need him so much. And Ribbentrop went to the gallows saying, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for all my sins. May God have mercy. On my soul. Is it possible that we consider that these two men didn't deserve God's mercy? Let me share something very personal with you. When I was preparing this sermon and got to this point in place, something within me reacted against the thought of these two evil men being saved. And I reflected on the fact that the prophet Jonah had a similar attitude to the wicked Ninevites. So much so that he didn't want to share God's message with them. And he went away in a boat in the opposite direction. Surely such vile and wicked sinners deserve to be punished for what they did. Surely such evil cannot go free. And of course the answer is absolutely correct on both accounts. They didn't deserve mercy. And by the way, neither do we, neither does anyone. That's the whole point about mercy. In the gospel, mercy is freely and fully available for all who are undeserving. But what about the punishment for their sins? Make no mistake, Keitel and Ribbentrop were wicked, evil monsters, but all Keitel's sins All Ribbentrop's sins in all their wicked and abominable foulness were laid on Christ on the cross along with your sins and with mine. Keitel's sins and Ribbentrop's sins didn't go unpunished. Christ endured all the punishment that Ribbentrop and Keitel and countless millions down through the ages have deserved. In their last days and hours of life, these men came to see the wonder of it all in Christ and placed their confidence and trust in him. What amazing grace. What great grace. What an amazing Christ who saved a wretch like me. Kaito's testimony, Ribbentrop's testimony, my testimony, your testimony. The Christ who saved Ribbentrop and Kaito when they cried from the depths to him, is the same Christ who will save you when you cry to him also. Cry to him today, friends, if you don't know the Lord. Do not put off. If you think you are not bad enough to need a savior, you are mistaken. And if you think you're too bad for God to save you, you are also mistaken. Sometimes we sing this chorus in a hymn, don't we? The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. That's true, but I wonder if we realize just how serious that is and its consequences. That promise is for us. For those of us here who confess Christ as our Savior, there is a challenge and encouragement in this passage. Like the psalmist, we too must share our testimony we too must tell people about the salvation and grace that is freely and fully available in Christ. We too must tell them of the free mercy, the great grace, the abundant redemption that is here for the asking. What prevents us from doing so? Fear of man? Fear of neighbours? What will think of us? Ridicule, rejection, refusal? Our Lord Jesus experienced all that and worse. And we, in a sense, should not expect otherwise. Here too the psalmist comes to our aid. As Christians, who do we fear? Let's read verse 4 again. But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. The word fear is used. It's not the fear of God that is an expression of hopelessness, abandonment, dread and terror on account of our sins being unforgiven. Rather, it is a wholly different kind of fear. It is deep reverence, respect, an adoration of the Lord God who has forgiven us and of our total dependence on him. Let that motivate us now into 2021. And I will finish with this now. Annie Flint uh, was a hymn writer. She expresses this so beautifully and graphically in the hymn I'm about to read to you. You may be familiar with it. He, being gone, he gives us more grace as the burdens grow greater. He sends us more strength as the labors increase. To added afflictions, he adds his great mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength fails, when the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. Fear not that your need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both you and your Lord, will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he gives us and gives us and gives us again. Amen, and may God bless to us the preaching of his word.